In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come into my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hey everybody, welcome to the Perspectrum. This is Michael Bloom. This is Nathan Seelov. And welcome back uh, for our old listeners and welcome for the first time for any newbies out there. Today uh, we'll be discussing a few big topics. We'll talk about DACA. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, impeachment update. We'll give a little bit of a primary update, uh, sp- talking specifically about Elizabeth Warren's health care plan and some additional weaknesses we found. And we'll do this all from the theme this week of uh, the burden of proof. Yep. So let's talk about the burden of proof. Uh, And I want to talk about this in sort of three different levels. Uh, The first one is as a matter of, um, of logical fallacy. So the burden of proof fallacy happens when someone shifts the burden of proof that should rightfully fall with themselves to another person. So say I were to walk up to Michael and I were to say, hey, Michael, hey, hey got, there. This, got this uh, invisible gremlin right here who's mm. uh, right right next to me, and he whispers in my ear, and uh, he, he tells me everything about morality, and that's that's who I get my morality from. I don't see any gremlin. I don't well, think that's real. Well, that, that's because he's invisible. He's invisible. Well, prove to me that there's a gremlin there. Prove he's not there. Can you prove he's not there? And that is burden of proof shifting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... When you propose something that in a state of nature is assumed to not exist or to not be real or to not be valid, the ver- the burden is on you to prove that it is true. So the automatic assumption when anybody proposes anything should be this is bullcrap until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. So... That's the logical fallacy aspect of the burden of proof. So, and if you think about like that concept, it's really fundamental to knowledge making. Like if you think about like what the project, like the scientific project is, yeah. it is the process of bringing skepticism to new discoveries yeah. and requiring that discovering, making new arguments about what is the case in the world, meet a really high standard um, and overcome the status quo of disbelief, of yeah. skepticism. Yeah. And when I say like the neutral state is to not know anything, what I mean is, I mean, when you're born, you don't know anything Mm -hmm. like you have to be taught things. But in order for those things to be taught to you, they have to in a factually honest way, they have to be proved rather than assumed that the burden of proof is on you to uh, to discount everything. Basically, if someone presents you something and doesn't give you any evidence, you don't need evidence in order to just dismiss it Mm -hmm. exactly so that's the that's the logical fallacy aspect of it Mm -hmm. so let's talk about the legal aspect of it uh michael this is more your thing yeah sure so um so you've probably in watching crime shows heard about like the burden of proof in the criminal context so uh if a prosecutor is bringing a case against a defendant um the defendant has is uh Innocent until proven guilty, which is essentially saying that the burden of proof is on the prosecutor. Yeah. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. So that's the standard. So the burden of proof 
is accompanied in logical cases and legal cases with a threshold. And the threshold is really important. That's the point beyond which um, you have proved your case. So in the logical concept or the logical context, um, you would have to uh, bear your burden of proof and overcome the threshold of, you know, like reasonability or logic or probably something along the lines of like 51%, more likely than not. Uh, that's the same threshold or standard as would be in a uh, civil trial where you it just has to be more likely than not that um, a wrong occurred. But in a criminal trial, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's often put in the context of like 99% sure, certain. Yeah. Now, important to note as we go through talking about um, you know, things like impeachment or things like, you know, different lawsuits, the burden of proof shifts as you make your way through the legal system. So um, if a plaintiff, which is the name for someone who brings a lawsuit uh, in the civil context, so like someone who sues somebody else, um, if a plaintiff brings a lawsuit, uh, the burden of proof is on them to prove their case. Um, now, if the plaintiff receives a favorable judgment, so they, the judge or jury determines that they um, or correct and are entitled to damages, if the defendant appeals the case, then the burden of proof is on them because the court defers to the lower court's opinion. So you'll often see that in the case of like a United States Supreme Court decision. You'll often see that, that if they don't overturn the lower court's decision, uh, they remand the decision or, or they um, affirm it. So remanding is when they send it back down to the lower court. Affirming it is saying, yep, the lower court was good. We defer to their opinion. We're not going to overturn it. Um, and so like, that's all based, that's based fundamentally in the idea of the burden of proof. Yeah. And that can shift during other procedures such as an impeachment proceeding, yes, which definitely. we will get to a little bit later. Um, so another aspect that I think is important to talk about with burden of proof is on a philosophical level. So... On a philosophical level, when we talk about burden of proof, uh, when it comes to making decisions about how society should function, what changes we should make in society, it's often made with the understanding that the neutral is the status quo, and therefore anything that deviates from that status quo or any attempts to deviate from the status quo, there needs to be proof that that is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So the burden of proof is not to say that the status quo is good and to defend why the status quo is good, but the burden of proof is instead on any changes you make to the status quo uh, need to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that it is the ideal thing to do or that that's, that's the way you should go about doing it. And if you can't provide as not enough proof for that, then it doesn't matter how flawed you might think that the current, that the status quo is, um, you don't make the change. Yeah, and and the point about thresholds probably comes into uh, account when you talk about how good or bad the status quo is. If the status quo is terrible murder and corruption, it's a pretty low threshold to say that something else is more likely than not going to be better than that. Yeah. But if the status quo is a prosperous and growing society and economy, you might have to a relatively higher bar in order to like significantly modify the system. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time digging into recent news regarding DACA or the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. Yeah. The people that are involved in it are also known as DREAMers. Yeah. So mm -hmm. this recently came to the Supreme Court 
It's been battled in a lot of lower courts uh, over the last few uh, over the last few years of Trump's presidency. When he first took office, he announced that he was going to end the DACA program. And his what's interesting is he kind of shifted his position several times on this. Like on the campaign trail, he was uh, he was straight up saying, we need to send them back. Like they just have to go. We just they, they just have to go. That's that's what we need to do. They just have to go. Um, and then when he ended the program, he argued that he was ending it be, so that they could pass legislation in order to put it into law. And he even said during rally, I mean, who actually wants to to send these people back? I mean, these, these are kids who actually would want to do that. It's like, well, you are. You're the one that said you wanted to. Um, and another huge part of it and another huge part of it that pisses me off to no end is that he used them as a bargaining trip in order to get a stupid wall mm-hmm. where he was um, he was basically saying, okay, I'm not going to pass any immigration reform that includes the, the Dreamers unless you include funding for the wall. And for a while, Democrats were just like, uh, no, that's idiotic. We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And eventually they, they capitulated and they were like, okay, fine. We'll give you a little bit of money for the wall. Um, and... And note that this was against the backdrop of a potential um, shutting down of the government. There and was a government yeah, shutdown. Yeah, there was a government yeah. shutdown, potential default on uh, U.S. debt. So yeah. a ticking time bomb again behind this uh, And also, battle. one thing that I will say, and, and this is something that I kind of went back and forth on at the time that it was happening, there are a lot of people that were criticizing the Democrats for blinking on the wall. Um, I was, at the time, I was actually thinking, like, I, I have friends that are dreamers. Mm-hmm. I was actually starting to think like I, it's better to pay for the wall than for these people to be deported. Like if this is the only way we can prevent them from being port- deported, then build a stupid wall, put a put solar panels on it, make it see through, do whatever the hell you want. Just don't don't deport these people that are innocent. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like some progressives and some Democrats might disagree with me on that, but that's where I was at the time. And then Trump moved to the goalpost and was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't just want funding for the wall. I want you to cut down on legal immigration, which is a direct contradiction to the idea of, oh, no, 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 I'm not against legal immigration. I'm, I'm against illegal immigration. I mean, I'm going to make it impossible to be a legal immigrant but but i'm for legal immigration <laughs> yeah if if you're interested in like a deep dive into that john oliver actually did a great yeah dive deep into like yeah the the fake argument that is you know i'm pro legal immigration but anti illegal immigration um and the idea that there is a pathway to citizenship at all yeah um really interesting really interesting stuff yeah, it's but, funny it's well researched you should check it out yeah we're big fans of John Oliver. Um, But instead of going deep on, you know, immigration policy and on pathways to citizenship, we wanted to really focus in on on DACA and not just what happened, but also like what it is, why we should care, who these people are. Um, So as Nathan mentioned, um, currently there are 700,000 DACA recipients who would be significantly impacted by the shutting down of the program. And by significantly impacted, we mean they would have to be deported back to um, the country in which they were born. 
a lot of these people, in fact, by definition, they came here as children. Um, the applicants, in order to apply for the DACA program when it was first started in 2012, um, they had to be at least 15 years old and prove that they were under 16 when they came to the U.S. Um, and so basically we're talking by definition people that are young and often we're talking about people that were, you know, sub 10 years old, yeah. five, it, 10 years, people that like have no knowledge of the country in which they were born. And, and one thing that's important to note with that is that makes these kids, these people, innocent. Yeah, exactly. It, it, if Personally, I don't think necessarily that, you know, people that have violated the immigration program are, like, morally blameworthy. Yeah. Um, but even if you do, like, these kids don't qualify for that. They yeah. are yeah. in no way, even if in you, no way in control. Even if you take the hardline stance of... Crossing the border should be a criminal offense, which I, mm -hmm. I think it should be a civil offense. But even if you take that hard line position, that's not what happened with these. These were kids that crossed with their parents. Mm -hmm. And this is the only country they've ever known. Yeah. And this is like, for all intents and purposes, they are Americans. Yeah. And, and we tend to assume that like the American system of immigration where, um, when you're born here, you're automatically a citizen. Um, and the only people that are automatically citizens are people that are born here is like the common way to do things. Yeah. Um, which is, is not true of the world, but it's also not like not necessarily true from a national perspective, national identity perspective. Like what makes someone citizen of the United States? I mean, there's a patriotism aspect. There's like, it's a big question, but overall, like it would be, you'd be hard pressed to argue that these people um, shouldn't count. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, people like people often are calling out that, like, you know, these dreamers tend to be really high performers and they, they tend to do great things for our society, which is great. Like, yeah, I know, I know several I, that, yeah. uh, I, I know one that is in nursing, mm -hmm. you know, that is, that is studying to become a nurse and she's helping people right now yeah. uh, with her job. Yeah. And, like, and that's awesome. I personally, I'm worried that when people make that argument, they're distracting from the larger argument, which is that like, we don't require people to be great citizens in order to be citizens. We don't require them to like go to top schools and make a bunch of money. Like we should be supporting these kids. Yeah. Even if they're not like yeah. inventing, yeah. you know, the next, they're, drug if, that'll if save they're flipping of burgers lives. in a fast food joint, they're still people, they're still Americans, and yeah. we should think of them, we should respect their humanity exactly. just as much as we would respect the humanity of uh, a PhD. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Someone with a PhD. Yeah, exactly. So I, I definitely don't want that aspect to get lost in the fray. So Nathan, now that we've gone through some of this background, so what happened most recently with DACA? So most recently... Uh, DACA was put forth before the Supreme Court of the United States. This has been, uh, this has been a, a back and forth battle ever since Trump announced that he would end the DACA program. And there have been several lower courts that have determined that Donald Trump did not have, did not provide any valid reason for ending the program, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of gets back to the idea of burden of proof. So yeah, yeah. you're creating a new, you want to completely throw a wrench in the system uh, that would affect the U.S. economy in a significant way. That, you know, there's 7,000 
there's 7,000 dreamers. 700,000. 700,000, rather, uh, dreamers that are currently involved. That would be a major change and a major mm -hmm. blow to the U.S. economy. This is huge. You need to provide a reason, and yeah. Yeah. they didn't. They didn't provide any valid reason that any lower courts acknowledged. Yeah, importantly, so it's not that they didn't, so it's not that they didn't say anything. What they said was, and they, what they announced in the memo that ended the program, was that um, they concluded that the DACA program was illegal and un unconstitutional because it was instituted as a matter of executive order by the Obama administration. And their argument was basically, to the extent that they made one at all, this should be a legislative function. So their argument was that it was illegal and unconstitutional. Well, when you make an argument in a legal context, if you defeat that argument, you no longer have a leg to stand on. And that's kind of where we are from a legal perspective. Basically, the courts have said, well, the argument you made is totally wrong. So like, you have to provide us really compelling reasons why this is the case so that we'll allow you even to bring in additional arguments. Yeah. And one thing I will say is I think that it would be significantly better if this was put forth through legislation. Like, I think we do need a... Comprehensive immigration yeah, reform. Comprehensive immigration reform, uh, even just a clean dream act. I think that that would be absolutely ideal. But uh, in the meantime, you need to protect these, you need to protect these people. And so recently it was brought before the Supreme Court and there is some troubling news because there's a lot of media speculation that says that obviously the, I mean, you can probably expect that the the four like ultra conservatives on the Supreme Court are like, they're going to rule against it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, two of them are Trump appointees. Yeah. Um, and a there's presumption anyway. Yeah. And there is speculation that uh, Roberts, the chief justice, that he is going to be the swing vote as he has been in many cases ever mm -hmm. since uh, Kennedy was uh, Kennedy retired from the Supreme Court. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of media speculation that say it looks like he's leaning towards ruling against these uh, these kids, these young adults. And at this point, what they heard is just the oral argument. So at this point, they have to confer, they have to make their final decision. And it's going to be a little bit till we hear what that final decision is. But if it does end up being the worst, if it does end up ruling against these 700,000 young adults, then... I mean, there's going to be an unspeakable amount of deportation happening for innocent people. And let's not forget, this started because Donald Trump decided to end the program. Mm -hmm. And that is a campaign promise that he made. You can't pretend that, oh, some people got to him, some people, like, he didn't understand the implications of it. No, on the campaign, he was specifically saying, mm -hmm. what I want to do is send these people home. So don't you try to tell me, oh, no, he's just trying to force Democrats into passing it as legislation. Like, no, that's not what he's trying to do. That's He had a chance to do that, and he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. He turned them into a bargaining chip. That's what he did. And it is just unspeakably cruel to use the lives of these kids as a bargaining chip for mm. your own stupid political ambitions. Objectively, the wall is not going to work. 
It's not going to be built. It's not going to work. There are, study, there are plenty of studies that even show that an increase in border security reduces circular migration, which ends up making more undocumented immigrants in the country. And there's a lot of speculation based on uh, evidence in uh, evidence of past cases where they've tried to increase border security that the wall is more likely to increase the number of undocumented immigrants in the country rather than decrease. Not to mention the fact that, like, I believe like like approximately 40% of undocumented of undocumented immigrants come here through airplanes. Mm-hmm. And this is true, airplanes fly over walls. So they better anyway. It's no it's, maybe not under the truff FAA. So <laughs> it is unthinkable. The cruelty is the point. Yeah. The cruelty is the point as is with many things in the Trump administration, the um the the locking kids in cages yeah. the uh, it, it, it's about making a statement against a group of people not for an idea just to recap these kids signed up for this program they voluntarily came out of the shadows of our immigration and legal system in 2012 because they were promised uh, a path to legal status in the United States um, because they deserve it. And these kids came out and they registered for the program under that promise. And then the rug was pulled out from under them. Yeah. Even under, even under good faith, a uh, good faith situation, this would be horrible for these kids and we should really try to protect them. But as Nathan laid out, this is not a good faith situation. This is not an attempt to do the right thing for the country. This is, this is just an attempt to vilify a group of people um, and appease Trump's strong and unshaking base. So, and, and I just want to make one more point. And this is a point that I hesitate to make because I know throwing this term around casually is sometimes ineffective. But in some cases, you just need to be objective for a second. These are innocent people. These are innocent people whose lives will be destroyed if this program ends. And if you support that, if you're okay with that, then you've gotten to the point where you have dehumanized these people to the point where you don't care about how their lives are impacted. Mm -hmm. And it's due to arbitrary BS. Yeah, for no reason and at all. And if you if you are at that point, if you are at the point where you believe yes, these kids deserve to be deported, to have their lives destroyed, if you've dehumanized them to that point, you're racist. I hesitate to use that word casually because I know it's a it's a really it's a strong word to use and a lot of people are going to be like, "Oh, well, you know, it's typical leftist calling everyone who disagrees with them a racist." No. It, you can objectively measure the fact that if you dehumanize this entire group of people to the point where you're willing to destroy their lives, even though they're completely innocent, you're racist. Hey, Michael, let's uh, let's lighten the mood just a little bit. Yeah, on that heavy note, we're going into uh, one of the high points on the roller coaster of our weekly podcast. Uh, our tips, tips for, for good, good segment. <laughs> so as a reminder, we come to you each week with 
a tip, a small thing that you can do, a change in behavior or mindset or a little bit of knowledge uh, that by keeping in mind, you can make the world a little bit of a better place. Yep. So this week's tip for good, watch debates. Yeah. And okay. We're into politics. We're doing a political podcast. You may not be as into politics as we are. Totally get that. I mean, if you are taking the time to listen to this podcast, you at least are a little bit into them. Or you're into us. Into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who can blame them? <laughs> um, but but seriously, like it can be a fun time. It can be, you know, when you watch the Republican debate, you can drink as much alcohol as you want <laughs> yeah <laughs> during the democratic debate you know you can listen it can it can be annoying i get that but it really is an important part of our method for winnowing down a group of potential candidates yeah um, and by the time this podcast comes out will be a uh, probably late tuesday night mm-hmm. uh, which means that the uh, democratic debate for this week is going to be tomorrow or today if you're listening on Wednesday, or yesterday if you're listening on Thursday. But even if it is Thursday, it's not too late. Yeah, we you have can still this go magical back thing and watch it because yeah. it's recorded. Yeah, a magical yeah. thing called YouTube. So you should definitely go back and watch the debate. Uh, we're def- we're planning on having a, a podcast just dedicated to breaking down mm-hmm. the debate for y'all next week, and um, and we're 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 really excited to do that. Uh, in the debate is going to be uh, President Joe Biden, Senator Cory Booker, uh, Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg, Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Senator Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Senator Bernie Sanders, billionaire activist Tom Steyer, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and entrepreneur Andrew Yang. So you should always watch these debates because even if you're a Republican, like it's important to understand a accurate portrayal of the side that you disagree with rather than the straw man arguments that you likely hear from uh from your own from your own people and that goes for democrats as well absolutely like democrats should watch republican debates Mm -hmm. because you shouldn't you shouldn't just believe that republican are the straw men that are created by democrats either you should look at what they actually say look at their actual arguments Mm -hmm. and then judge them for yourself yeah exactly and ultimately, it doesn't have to be a huge time investment. On YouTube, you can speed up the videos because we all know that there's plenty of BS and yeah. you can just listen to the parts that actually are important. Yeah. And if they take another 30 minutes before they actually start it, mm-hmm. like where they uh, they spend like 10 minutes introducing the candidates and then like 30 minutes singing the national anthem. and like Yeah, another, skip all that. Like, yeah. Skip the fanfare. National anthem's great, but like, you know. The point is to... Make sure that you're participating in our democratic republic and you're an informed and aware citizen because that's the best thing that we can be as citizens. Yep. And, and that's, that's tips, tips for, for good. good. <laughs> and now deep down into the depths again, impeachment. Yay! <laughs> this Uh, is michael's favorite segment yeah and the sarcasm is just dripping from our voices with that (laughs) generally like i don't like impeachment i'm not excited about it i'm not happy about it it is i mean what's to be excited about there's nothing you can do about it Mm -hmm. i mean what you should be more excited about is the prospects of voting 
in either the Democratic primary or in um, well, and in the uh, general election yeah. in November 2020. Yeah. That's what you should be getting excited about. There's not really much that we can do as citizens except mm-hmm. maybe express our opinion uh, during the impeachment inquiry. Yeah. So, um, so I definitely do think that we shouldn't use the impeachment inquiry to distract us from important issues, you know, like, like the dream act, uh, and, and DACA, mm-hmm. like, um, uh, other things we're going to talk about later with healthcare yeah. and we shouldn't use, do it to distract against us, but at the same time, it's big news that's happening. Yeah. And Let's not forget that this has only happened twice before. Yeah. Only two presidents have ever gone to an impeachment proceeding. So technically this hasn't well, happened yet. Well, Nixon Nixon didn't went, actually get impeached. Well, he didn't get impeached, but there were impeachment proceedings. Okay. Okay. So this is then this would be the fourth the f- with impeachment inquiries. Yeah. But only the potential to have the second impeachment ever of a president. Third, third impeachment <laughs> ever of a president. So basically we're saying regardless of how you feel, this is literally history happening right now. Yeah. And it's it is important to talk about as long as we don't let it distract us from other issues mm-hmm. that like you know we can actively fight for to uh, to implement policy to make people's lives better. Exactly. So basically, last week started public hearings in the house the house's inquiry into uh, whether they'll end up impeaching the president of the United States. The public hearings started on Wednesday, the thirteenth. Um, so if you're listening to this on Wednesday, just about a week ago, yep. um, it was a banner week for witnesses, um, in the impeachment hearings. Yep. Uh, Nathan, you want to start us off? Bill Taylor, who is a diplomat for the United States, testified to the impeachment inquiry in which he dropped an interesting new bit of information in which he claimed that One of his staffers, a guy named David Holmes, overheard a conversation between Sondland and Trump in which apparently he could hear uh, Sondland tell Trump that Zelensky loves your ass, to which he heard President Trump respond, so there's going to, so he's going to do the investigation to which he responded with saying um, he's going to do it, anything you ask him to do. After he got off the phone, he had asked Sondland if it was true that the president did not give a shit about Ukraine, which Sondland responded by saying that Trump only cares about big stuff. Hmm. So so let's let's break that down then. Yeah. So let's let's step back a little bit. So one... This is not the same phone call that we've heard about. No. The transcript was released. That was the July phone call. With Trump and Zelensky. With Trump speaking to the president of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky. Yeah. This was a phone call that Trump had with uh, Sondland. Yeah. And the important thing that this kind of brings to light is, I mean, it, it... it's another one of those things that provides evidence to something that we are all we all already knew, which is Trump doesn't care about the corruption. Like, yeah, which is a which is a Republican argument that we've heard a, a fair amount. Um, and one of their main arguments is that one, this is like the normal course of business, and and two, that this is Trump trying to combat corruption abroad. 
Yeah. Uh, and that because that is the case, this is not an impeachable offense. If if it's even an offense at all, there's yeah. they many people argue that this is not that trying to get trying to force the uh, Ukrainian president to um, conduct to announce a public investigation into Hunter Biden. Um, many people say that that's actually nothing, not, not a problem at all. And this is one of the reasons why, that it's actually for combating corruption abroad. Yeah. And it's important just to put this in context of saying that truly that's not the intent yeah. of this request. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of people also pointed out, uh, Adam Schiff actually pointed out that, um, that if uh, David Holmes was able to hear Trump on the other line, he must have been speaking really loudly. Mm. Trump um, just Trump just standing there like shouting his crimes like yeah. uh you know don't forget to get those investigations yeah, yeah and like, totally not about Ukraine it's about Biden and if something also like an important point is like just to step back and think about the arguments that Republicans are making um and not all Republicans but we're talking generally about like the narrative that is coming out of the Republicans yeah. in the house is that you know, this is all about corruption. But like, if you if you're trying to combat corruption, you're not asking for a public hearing, or you're not asking for a public announcement of an of an investigation. You're asking for an investigation. Yeah. What Trump requested was that they announce an investigation, not necessarily yeah. that they conduct one. Because the announcement, the illusion of there being one, that is more politically damaging. Mm -hmm. Like, and he doesn't care about legal recourse. He just wants to politically damage Joe Biden. Yeah, and importantly. If he's if he cares about corruption, maybe go to a different country where there's where corruption is a problem. Like there's only this is the only one apparently he cares about is just yeah, corruption just Ukraine, in Ukraine. Ukraine. I mean, not the corruption in Turkey, mm -mm. not the corruption in Saudi Arabia. No way. Where they killed one of our reporters, one of our journalists. Uh not the corruption in Russia. This is a top priority. Is corruption in Ukraine. Yeah. Which he happens to think uh, they have the DNC's emails in some server in Ukraine. It's the deep state, Nathan. It's the um, <laughs> yeah. So and, and you know, you know, I mean, if he really cares about corruption, I think there's a really good thing that he could actually do to like fight corruption on a global scale. Actually, um, he could resign. Hmm. I think that that would do a great job of fighting corruption. You know, I would actually, yeah. I would actually or testify say, or testify, <laughs> which apparently I, I was reading some reports earlier today. He actually is, he's claimed that he's open to the idea of testifying in front of the house. Just <laughs> oh, imagine. but his aides won't let him. Oh, they don't want him to because they know <laughs> that as soon as he gets up in front of there, he's going to admit to everything. I don't listen to my people. I don't listen to my people ever. But in this, it, right now, I'm, I'm just going to, I really want to testify, but, but they've, you know, they've convinced me. They're, my hands are tied. Yeah. No, you know what? You know what <laughs> my I, tiny, tiny hands are tied. <laughs> you know what I imagine happening? Like, mm. I just imagine um, just one of, one of the Democrats, uh, like one of, one of the, hopefully one of the smarter ones, um, one of the Democrats just being like, hey, hey, Donald Trump, don't worry. I, I don't believe, I don't believe that you did this. I just... I don't think that you're smart enough to do it. 
And then he's like, what, what? No, I'm totally smart enough to do it. I totally did it. I totally did it. <laughs> and then it's like the end of a Scooby-Doo movie when like, oh man, you tricked me, yeah. you kids. I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for your meddling kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so that is the news from Bill Taylor. That's the major thing that we took yeah. away from his testimony last week. So on Friday, Marie Yavanovich, the previous ambassador to Ukraine, um, testified in front of the... Uh, impeachment inquiry as well. Um, she was removed from her position in May um, after a 33-year 30, 30, tenure as a civil servant. Um, her boss specifically said that she had done nothing wrong when she was removed. Um, yeah. and, and when it looked like she was going to get removed, Sondland actually uh, told her you should make a nice tweet about Donald Trump mm -hmm. in order to keep your job. Yeah. Which... Apparently, that's the job qualification for being a diplomat I mean, it and representing is. our interests. I mean, it literally is like how you get a job in Trump's <laughs> government is like, say nice say things, so, say maybe nice donate things. some money. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but she was being questioned on Friday about um, her reaction to the Trump transcript. So um, in the call with Zelensky, Trump like called out called her out by name and said, like, she's gone. She won't be a problem anymore. And she said specifically that she was going to go through some things. Um, and she said that when she read that, she felt like that was a, a really ominous and threatening thing to hear from the president of the United States directed at you. Um, and while she was testifying, um, Adam Schiff pulls up a tweet that Trump uh, sent out during her testimony. And the tweet said, everywhere Marie Yanovich went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Then fast forward to Ukraine, where the new Ukrainian president spoke unfavorably about her in my second phone call with him. It is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. Adam Schiff read that tweet to Yanovich during the actual te during the actual testimony and a lot of people are arguing that this is witness intimidation yeah that in specifically trying to target her in his tweets target a witness who is actively testifying against him um saying that everywhere she went turned bad when if you look at her record um almost across the board things improved when when she came in with her team her own um, boss said she didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, exactly. So people are arguing that in uh, directing his political influence at her um, during her testimony was a form of witness intimidation because he's basically trying to leverage his influence and power as the president of the freaking United States of America um, against a witness who is testifying against him. Yeah. And in response to the allegations that this was uh, witness intimidation... Um, Jim Jordan had probably one of the greatest counterarguments I've ever seen. And honestly, as soon as I saw this counterargument, I just, I changed my mind about the entire impeachment inquiry. Voted for Trump. Like I, I'm, I'm going to vote for Trump now. Yeah. So what he said was the witness is testifying. She didn't even know about the tweet. So basically he's trying to say. It's not witness intimidation because she wouldn't have seen until after she testified. Yeah, exactly. Because she's not going to participate ever again in this process. Apparently, yeah. Has already been exactly. a courageous woman standing yeah. up against the president. And there's no the way States. she wouldn't hear about it. Like she wouldn't have heard yeah. about it. 
yeah. at all. You know, as soon as she walked out, it's her name yeah. tweeted by the president. Yeah, yeah, tweeted by the president. I mean, nobody nobody follows his Twitter anyway. Like no one, no one, no one like reports on his tweets at all. Like it's not yeah. like she would see it. Never even comes up. So that's another important bit of information about the hearings that came out. The third major thing that we want to make sure we talk about is a shift in language um, that you might have picked up on if you've been paying close attention over the past week, and a few uh, news organizations have talked about. But a shift from discussing quid pro quo exclusively to discussing bribery. And so what exactly is this difference? So quid pro quo technically means this for that. It's yeah. Latin. Um, yeah. And it is meant to denote a favor in exchange for a favor. Yeah. Now, there's argument over whether this is really quid pro quo because it's more like a threat in exchange for a favor. Yeah. And so, like, that might not apply. But generally speaking, it's just the act of trading something for something. Yeah. Which is done a lot. Yeah, that's politics. In foreign policy. You know, and, and the, if that was, if that was, if the question was just about that, then, I mean, there'd be no problem here. No one would care. I mean, that's just what you do. You, uh, you specifically, represent, you represent the country's interests. Exactly. In your dealings with other countries in order to have favorable outcomes for your country. The problem is when you are doing it for personal gain. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you, I don't know were to withhold military aid from a country that is paid for by the taxpayers of your own country that was already authorized by your Congress, unless the, uh, unless the country in question investigated your domestic political opponent, see, that right there would be bribery. Yeah, exactly. And so the three elements of bribery are an elected official demands something of value, i.e. Um, a public investigation, which would hurt his political opponent and be something of value, um, in exchange for uh, being influenced in the performance of an official act. So basically, Zelensky would be influenced to announce a public uh, investigation into Hunter Biden. That's the public act. And was done with corrupt intent. So that is the point where um, Trump is trying to take, is doing this for his own personal gain against the interest of the, of the United States and doing it intentionally, like trying to go out there and receive something of value against the, the um, performance of an official act uh, for his own gain. So that's kind of like the whole picture. Bribery is the crime which is a named part of the impeachment clause in question. So that's Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, and it says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Generally speaking, people get caught on the other high crimes and misdemeanors because it's broader and... It covers a lot of stuff. In this case, the case is being made that Trump violated one of the named parts, the bribery section of yeah. the impeachment clause. Yeah. And the case is getting stronger all the time. That's our abbreviated coverage of the past week of public hearings so that you can get a little bit of more information without investing a ton of time in 
trying to understand exactly what everybody's saying. So now let's do our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So just a reminder, Asshat of the Week is when we name a particularly heinous individual, usually with a bit of comedy, um, for doing something particularly terrible. Yep. Nathan, who's our honoree this week? Well, our honorary recipient of our weekly Asshat of the Week award, that was redundant, is Bob Murray. Mm. Who's mm. Bob Murray? Bob Murray. He is the CEO of... Murray Energy, a which, mining corporation based in St. Clairsville, Ohio. Yep. And uh, he has had... Well, there are several things wrong with him. Uh, mm -hmm. First off, there's the several sexual assault allegations or sexual misconduct allegations that have been levied against him. There is the uh, neglecting of basic... Uh, basic mining sta safety standards in his mines that mm -hmm. has led to deaths. Um, he was called out for all of this about two years ago in a segment by one of our favorite comedians, John Oliver. Mm. And what was interesting is during that segment, John Oliver recognized that he was probably going to get sued by Bob Murray. Because Bob Murray is a particularly litigious individual. Yeah. So what happened was we didn't end up hearing anything about Bob Murray for like, uh, it was like two years. It was, it was, it was a while. And, and, and then a lot of people just kind of moved on. We're like, okay, well, I guess nothing happened. Apparently, the reason why we didn't hear anything about him was because he did sue John Oliver. And they'd been in litigation for the last few years um, until just recently they dropped the case. Because they didn't have a case, because mm -hmm. the lawsuit was basically a, it was like I think it was like a defamation suit mm -hmm. about like uh, how he was he felt personally assaulted. Yeah, which so in defamation you have to show real damages, which he spe specifically called out that he was like particularly stressed about being like called out by John Oliver, yeah. which and ooh, also as ooh, a public John Oliver does that to everyone. <laughs> like, yeah, and a as a as a public figure, like someone in the public eye. You actually have to prove actual malice, yeah. which is proving that someone was intentionally trying to hurt you with reckless disregard for the truth. Yeah. So anyways... Um, so that was dropped, which is really great news. That was dropped. And then in response, John Oliver had this amazing segment, which you should all watch. Definitely. It was hilarious. And you know, I, we try to end on, a, on these on a positive note. And mm -hmm. demonstrate a hero in the story. I think that John Oliver is definitely the hero in this story. Absolutely. You should check out his segment, his song, and a huge congratulations mm -hmm. to Bob Murray for being our Asshat of the Week. All right, Michael, let's talk about stuff that we actually enjoy talking about that might actually lead to legitimate change in the country. Mm. The primary. Oh, heck yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about Elizabeth Warren's recent proposed health care plan mm -hmm. for the last few weeks. And I think it's important to uh, address that because uh, she is the second most progressive person in the field. Mm -hmm. And she is in the top three for potentially getting the nomination. She has a legitimate chance of being our nominee. And she released the plan to kind of... Uh, 
address some of the criticisms people had about whether or not it would raise taxes for the middle class. I'm not going to get too into what we talked about next last week. You can you can listen to you can listen to our podcast from last week if mm-hmm. you want to discuss our own coverage. But this week, there is some even more problematic news for uh, her plan regarding health care. So she announced this plan for the transition, like how she was going to transition. And the idea that she has is there's going to be two separate pieces of legislation. So in the first, so I'm going to lay out the two pieces of legislation. I'm going to explain the rationale for why she's probably doing this. And then I'm going to address why it's probably not the best strategy. Yeah. Importantly, her goal is, and the plan she's going for, is Medicare for all. Yeah. To lay that out. Medicare for all that uh, replaces uh, most private insurance, you know, with the exception of supplemental insurance, with uh, a single-payer plan that would cover everything that is currently being covered by whatever private insurance plan and cover all of the necessities. Mm -hmm. So, and that is a good goal. Let's, let's. Be clear. I think that's a that's a great goal. So her plan is in her first year, she wants to pass a uh, basically a public option. Basically, what what uh, what Pete Buttigieg calls a Medicare for all who wants it type of plan, where anybody who wants to enroll in the government uh, in the government government run single player plan can do it. Anybody who doesn't doesn't have to. And That's going to happen in the first year. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that that is going to help ease the transition so that in her third year, she can pass her full-on Medicare for All bill and then move everybody on to that plan. Mm -hmm. So here's the justification. Here's the rationale behind it. So there is a common argument talking point from um, people that are kind of more moderate within the Democratic Party that, yeah, we think that the single-player plan is a better plan, but let's give Americans the option to opt into that plan rather than uh, take away the options of private insurance. So we should trust them to make that decision. And if it does work out the way we said it was going to work out, where um, the government plan is going to be the better plan, that... Americans will naturally just shift towards it. So the idea is make that public option, get more and more people signing up on mm-hmm. it so they know how great that this is and um, and so that they could get to the point where they think, okay, I think that maybe a Medicare for all system is not so bad because this system is working pretty well. Mm-hmm. So it makes, the idea is to make a more easy transition both politically and uh, strategically. That's the justification. That's, you know, that's the strategy. Here's why that's a problem, though. Here's why that is just not going to happen. First off, let's look at history. President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, to its credit, it did make a lot of very necessary changes. And there are a lot of things. It did put a lot of a lot more people on health care. Um, there's a lot of good things that it did. It was also originally a Republican plan. It was created by the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. And the reason why it was a Republican plan was because rather than doing anything to get rid of uh, private insurance, it mandated private insurance so that uh, everybody would be covered, but that still 
uh, that still has a great, has a major benefit for private insurance companies because they're getting more people into their business. Yeah, fundamentally, it doesn't solve the challenges that private insurance poses. Yeah, it doesn't. So what Obama basically did was he immediately ran to the Republican argument with the hopes that this could be a bipartisan process. But the problem is the Republicans are just not honest actors. Mitch McConnell, when when Obama was first when Obama was first elected, Mitch McConnell specifically said, our primary goal is not going to be the help of the American people. It's not going to be to pass any legislation that helps people. It's going to be to make him a one-term president. And in order to do that, they had to be against absolutely everything that he was for. Mm -hmm. Which is a good lesson that we have got to keep in mind and learn today. Yeah. Is that we're not, and this is a point that Buttigieg made um, in the last debate and in the caucus in Iowa, is that we're not going to get them on our side when it comes to we're not going to get the Republicans on our side when it comes to the elected healthcare. Republicans. The, the elected Republicans when it comes to healthcare. Yeah, very, yeah. very good point. Yeah, um, there are plenty of there are plenty of Republican voters that care a lot about healthcare, and sure. there, there's a, even a fair amount that support Medicare for all. But um, but yeah, we're not going to get any elected Republican with us on healthcare. So it took all of Obama's political capital to make even that get passed, and he had a, a super majority. Mm -hmm. Now. Do you honestly think that if Elizabeth Warren is able to get that uh, public option passed with, you know, e even if let's assume that Democrats do can take control of the Senate, it's going to be narrow. It's not going to be a supermajority. Let's assume she's able to get that passed. How much political capital do you think she's going to have left after that? Like, that's going to end up being the main signature achievement of her administration. Mm -hmm. How many people are going to push much, are going to try to push much further than that? Which again, would be a benefit. It would be an improvement over our current system. Yeah. But as a means to achieving Medicare for all, which arguably could be feasible as a one-stop shop solution. Yeah. It's, yeah, it seems two, dubious. It's two separate pieces of legislation. There's yeah. going to be a major legislative battle to pass the public option in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then you want to try to do that all over again for Medicare for all. Yeah. Like, and, and the, to her credit, the argument is that by the time the third year, her third year comes around and Medicare for all is on the table, the American people would have fallen so deeply in love yeah. with the public option as a stand in for all government provided healthcare um, that they will demand it of their representatives. And there is an argument to be made that because the public option is better than what we currently have, that if we can go ahead and do that, we should go ahead and do it and mm -hmm. then you know move on to the next fight of Medicare for All. There is an argument to be made about that, but the first fight is going to, it, it's going to use so much political capital. Yeah. And also, let's point out another thing. By her third year... The midterm election will have happened. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it'll be different this time around, but uh, historically, um, you give up seats. You in give the up a lot. The, the sitting president gives up a lot of seats during the midterm election. Mm -hmm. And it's very possible that Democrats 
even if they do take control of the Senate in 2020, that they might not main control, maintain control of both uh, chambers of Congress. Yeah. And by her third, by the third year of her first term, mm-hmm. I'm. That's a huge risk. There are so many gambles associated with this. Yeah. Also, the problem with relying on a two-tiered system, mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to point to that and say that this is evidence that a single-payer system would be better, is that the quality is often the, the quality often changes based on um, who's in charge, who's in power. So, say she passes the public option, isn't able to pass Medicare for all. And then a Republican becomes president and there's a Republican Congress. So maybe they don't overturn the public option, but they chip away at it. Mm -hmm. They start making it so it covers less and less and less and less, which makes the private options significantly more, like uh, cover significantly more, which means that you have people that are uh, sick or uh, too poor to afford um, a lot of uh, too, too poor to afford a private option in the public option, mm-hmm. which makes it completely overburdened. Yeah. And then the people that can afford the private options who are less sick, who don't need as much coverage or who don't need as much coverage are in the private option. And then the Republicans point to the fact that the private option is providing better coverage than the public option as evidence that neoliberalism, when it comes to paying for health care, is always like that's the better solution. Mm-hmm. But the reason why that would happen is because of the two-tiered system. Yeah. Let's let's take a minute to break this down a little bit further. That's that's a lot in there. Yeah. So like let's let's take a minute to break it down. The way insurance works is by creating a balanced risk pool. Okay, so basically you have some people that are gonna be really sick, some people that are not gonna be sick at all, and a bunch of people right there in the middle. By all paying premiums into the system, we are creating a pool of money that are, that's able to satisfy the want of security of everybody in the pool and pay for people that get sick from people that don't get sick. Now they get security, they get the fact that um, the pool will pay for them if they have an emergency um, problem. But like a lot of people won't collect out of that system. But the problem is when you create a two-tiered system, as Nathan was discussing, the people that are wealthier and the people that are less likely to get sick are going to go for a less expensive uh, private option versus the people that are going to have to default to the public option because private insurance either won't cover them or because they're sick or poor will cover them at a much too high rate. So we're going to we're going to end up with two pools. One, a low risk pool that's well funded, provided by the private sector, and one, a high risk pool satisfied by the public sector, which is going to cost more money and have a harder time providing for its higher cost and higher um, investment uh, recipients. And so then the Republicans will be able to point to that and say, well, government-provided health care doesn't work. Well, really, high-risk pools are more expensive and harder to service. That's why we need the whole pool of people of the United States, both healthy and rich and sick and poor and everybody in the middle, in order to balance the pool effectively. Yeah. So that's an important point, too, with these... With a higher risk pool, it's going to cost more money. So 
Elizabeth Warren is creating this plan so that it costs the same amount of money over the next 10 years as our current system, $52 billion. Um, and that a certain amount of funding shifts to the government, 52 trillion, excuse me, dropping some zeros there. Um, and certain funding shifts to the government. Um, and that's how we end up paying for the plan without having to increase taxes and without increasing the deficit significantly. The problem is that if you have an interim period where the government is saddled with the highest cost, highest risk group of people, that's going to increase costs. And I don't see that called out anywhere in her budget. Yeah. And so the question for me then is like, if this interim plan is there, like, where is it in your budget? Your budget specifically focuses on the next 10 years, three of which will have a higher cost, higher risk pool yeah. without the proper balance of the lower risk participants. So I'm really curious about how the economics works there. Yeah. And also to be clear, there has to be a transition period between like what we have now and Medicare for all. It's not like, you know, one day, uh, one day only elderly people are covered and then the next day everybody's covered. That's not the, pl that's not Bernie's plan. His plan is actually a four year easing into uh, uh, easing by lowering the age requirement of people for enrolling in Medicare um, slowly until uh, everybody is covered, which, you know, it, it makes sense because you need to have a transition period, but that is built within the original legislation. It's not two separate pieces of legislation. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this I think gets to one of the essential differences between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren for me. I mean, I have said on several occasions that I do find Elizabeth Warren's politics to be wonderful in most cases. I find her to be a very wonderful progressive. Uh, she's done great work both prior to her Senate career and uh, during her Senate career. I mean, let's never forget she created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Let's never forget that. And she did that before she was in the Senate. So I do not want this to sound like I am anti-Warren or I despise her. If Bernie Sanders was not in the primary, she would be the clear progressive choice and I would be all for her. But the thing is, we do have an alternative that is more progressive, that is uh, that goes further, has bolder plans that you can objectively look at on paper and be like, yeah, that this goes further. Mm -hmm. um, and that's Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Like there's, it, it feels like, Elizabeth Warren does have political capital with progressives, but also some political capital with establishment Democrats. And sometimes I feel like she's not sure what to do with each because if she does go, she does feel like if she goes too far to the left, that the establishment, and, and when I say establishment Democrats, I don't mean voters, I mean the people who are in office. Mm -hmm. She's worried that she's not going to be invited to the party anymore. She's going to be as ostracized from the Democratic Party as Bernie Sanders has, has been. Um, to which I would say, I mean, just don't worry about that. Like, be your own politician. Be your own person. That's why people like you. That's why people like Bernie Sanders. The reason why people like you is because for the longest time, you fought against people in your own party to make sure that they were trying to meet the interests of the American people. Yeah. And to be fair, like, we're not saying that Elizabeth Warren is, like, significantly watered down. Oh, no. 
She, no. but as we've pointed out, she's made a few concessions to a few arguments that on their face seem like they might hold water. But when you dig a little bit deeper, they don't yeah. like, like not raising taxes on the middle class to fund the healthcare plan because yeah. ultimately it'll end up costing the middle class less money overall. Yeah. So like why she make kind of, that political concession and, and yeah. come up with a plan which is more convoluted, a slower transition, potentially a worse transition, and in a number of ways, more regressive. a worse plan. Yeah, more regressive. Yeah. Like the tax, the headcount. The funding is, is the, more the regressive. The headcount for the, uh, the, uh, uh, employer, the employer shifting the cost of healthcare to the government mm-hmm. is a headcount, which is more regressive. Yeah. So um, in, in my opinion, at this point, if you are... If you are more on the progressive side of politics and you want more progressive change to happen, uh, Bernie Sanders is your candidate. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't valid reasons to vote for Elizabeth Warren. I mean, some people might make the argument that she's a little younger. You're worried about Bernie Sanders' health. Some people some people might even make the argument that um, they want a woman in the White House. And I respect that argument. I mean, no one's ever batted an eye about the fact that Every president up till now has been a bunch of men. And I respect that argument. I don't think, I don't capitulate to that argument because I think ultimately what matters more is the policy because, you know, it's politics. You should care more about policy rather than um, personality, like personality or uh, group. Yeah. Or group. I mean, identity does matter to the extent that it affects your policies. Yes. So, and your ability to be representative. Um, exactly. So I respect that argument. Or even if you're just you're just not as far left. Like maybe sure. maybe you're a bit more moderate. You do want some like you know yeah some bold changes, but like not too bold. Like if that's if that's where you're at. <laughs> let's let's not be watered down. Like very bold. <laughs> like bold, but not like not super not Bernie bold. Sanders. Not Bernie bold. Sanders bold. Like if that's where you are. Then I mean I respect that. Like if that's if that's why you want to vote for, I, I respect that. Um, I I don't I don't want it to sound like I'm shaming people, uh, for who they're voting for. Like especially if it's a choice between Bernie and Warren because they're two both they're both two great candidates. Um, but I'm I'm going to make the argument for who I think is going to be the best choice. And now we'll bring to you our closing segment that we have each week, trying to end our podcast, which is really a roller coaster. We try to we try to cover the breadth Especially of Especially today. Yeah. Today was an emotional roller coaster. We That's went sure. straight from like passionate rants to like uncontrolled laughter. Yeah. And like. so yeah, exactly. Um, and so as usual, we'll end on the highlights from our week. Uh, so Nathan, what what are your highlights? Well, my highlight is that in my class we talked about logical fallacies mm. and that is my favorite lecture to give because I think logical fallacies are fascinating to study, fun to fight against. And it's always great to see the reactions from students while I, while I talk about them. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, for me, as usual, I saw Brie this past weekend. So that was a definite high for me. Um, and I've been in my, my new job, which I got recently, um, I've been doing a lot of coding, um, which is not historically been one of my main skills. 
And recently I've been like really getting the hang of it and getting the experience of solving a bunch of um, problems. Like you come up with a coding problem and then that, that moment when you solve the puzzle is a sweet release. Yeah. So that's been, that's been great lately. Nice. All right. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in next week when we talk about the uh, debate. And make sure to watch the debate yourself. Have a great week. Bye.